when I was in college, my roommate and I had some rough neighbors in our dormitory. These guys, in fact, they were sweet mates, which means that we shared a, the two of us shared a bathroom with the two of them. But we never called them a sweet mates. That didn't sound right. But they were sweet mates. But they were kind of rough, and they weren't easy to get along with, and uh, certainly weren't easy to love. They were loud. They were obnoxious. They were vulgar. They were filthy. They were intimidating. I mean, we were in college, so our, our room wasn't like always neat or anything, but it was picked up. At least my side of the room was. My neighbor was kind of messy. But these guys weren't just messy. They were filthy. The bathroom that we shared with them was just oh, disgusting. And we'd try to clean it up, and we'd try to keep it clean as much as possible. And it was just like, I mean, I don't want to describe it to you because it, it, it's inappropriate. But um, I remember one time my roommate came in, and he was kind of upset. And he said, what, what's going on? I said, well, this guy, and I forget their names. Now, one of the guys, our neighbors, uh, had talked to him and said, hey, you guys need to clean the bathroom. We've been cleaning it, and you haven't done anything. And I said, would you tell him that we clean it too? I said, no, I was afraid to, you know. So he went back in there, started cleaning up. And, and they were just, it was, that relationship was, uh, was just kind of kind of awkward. And uh, it, they were hard to get along with. Until one time that, uh, I don't know why they asked me if I wanted to play football with them. They would get together and play football on Sunday afternoons. And, uh, you know, back then I was young and I could run. I was pretty fast. I was actually a sprinter when I ran track in in school, so I could run, and I could catch the ball, so, and I like to play, so yeah, I'll play with you. Uh, to this day, I don't know why they bothered to ask me. I was a, you know, my room and I were the music students, you know, I was a choir boy, so why did they ask me? But they did, and I went out there, and I played with them, and they realized I could play, and I could catch, I could run, and so then they started inviting me quite a bit, and I played with them a lot. They were like, hey, let's go play some ball. Yeah, let's go, and they kind of smoothed some things over, and it was, it was a little bit easier after all that started happening. In fact, it was during that time, we'd play on Sunday afternoons, and uh, Lillian and I were dating, and so one Sunday afternoon, we're out there playing, and she and my roommate were in Lillian's car watching us play. Now, I didn't have a car, my roommate didn't have a car, but Lillian did, so they were in Lillian's car watching us play. My roommate was a great musician, very intelligent, but uh, he wasn't athletic at all, and he didn't really follow sports, So, uh, but they're watching me play, and I I went out for this long pass, and uh, I didn't catch it. I didn't get it you know, right to me, and I didn't get catch up to it, so I, I didn't catch it. And so my roommate says, oh, he says, uh, I think that's what you call a Hail Mary. No, he didn't know much about football. Long pass. I think that's what you call a Hail Mary. And, and uh, Lillian, being you know, witty as she is, said, oh, no wonder he didn't catch it. He's not Catholic. You know, so you know, we, we did a lot of uh, playing and, and smoothing over relationships. But, but they were hard to, to get along with. Well, today we continue our series titled, Messy, Loving Others Isn't Easy. And we're talking about how our neighbors uh, are, um, how we're called to love our neighbors. But a lot of times it's not easy to do. And so we're going we're gonna to read today from Luke 10, beginning with verse 30. But first let me give you some, some context. One day a man approached Jesus. This man was an expert in the Mosaic law. And so he asked Jesus a question. The question was this, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What should I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, knowing that this man was an expert in the law, in the law of Moses, he turned the question back on him and he he said to him, okay, what is written in the law? 
What is written in the Mosaic law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Well, the man answered, well, uh, what's written and the way I read this is that uh, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he said to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus uh, said, okay, you've answered correctly. That was a correct answer. Now, the word neighbor, and we talked a little bit about this last week, the word neighbor was basically synonymous with your family. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites read the law, and the law said, love your neighbor as yourself, then the way they understood that was somebody in your family, that's who your neighbor is. Israel had 12 tribes, but only your tribe was your neighbor. Somebody from another tribe, even though they're part of the same people, they're part of the same story, they they, they weren't considered your neighbor. It was somebody basically from your own tribe. And so this expert in the law, because he knew the law, because he was an expert in the law, then he answered correctly when Jesus simply said, you know, Jesus didn't ask him what's the most important uh, uh, law, the most important commandment like it had been asked of him. He just told him, You're an expert in the law. How do you read it? He went right to it. I read it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you you answered correctly. So then the expert asked, and who is my neighbor? See, that's the question. And he was trying to, the Bible says he was trying to justify himself. And so he asked the question, and who is my neighbor? So then Jesus, in response, uh, told this story. In Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time. I'm here. All right, so that was a story that Jesus told in response to the question, and just who is my neighbor? He told this story. Now, what Jesus is doing is something major. What he's doing here is something huge. Because this is a culture where the idea of neighbor was so narrow, was so myopic to, to tribe, so narrow to people just like you, just like us. And that Jesus throws open the door and he, he says, you know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is that person you can't stand. Because the Samaritans, verse 33 says that a despised Samaritan came along. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. When this man was hearing the story and the other people who were listening to the story, they might have thought, okay, a Jew goes down, he gets attacked by bandits, he gets beaten up, left half dead. Somebody's going to come along and help him. I bet you it's a member of my tribe. 
I'm for sure it's going to be another Jew, but it's probably a member of my tribe. And possibly they were all thinking the same thing. And so when Jesus makes a hero of the story, not a Jew, not a member of the tribe, whatever it was, of this man who was an expert of the law, or any other tribe of Israel, but he makes a hero, a hated Samaritan, then what Jesus was saying in response to the question, who is my neighbor? He was saying, your neighbor is that person you can't stand. That person who can't stand you. That person who doesn't like you. It's a person who is your rival. It's a person who, who hurt you, who wounded you. Your neighbor is that person. In fact, Jesus was saying, your neighbor is anybody you encounter as you go through life. In the Old Testament, the neighbor was very narrow. The definition was very narrow. But Jesus expanded that definition to mean anybody that you, that you encounter as you go through life, it might be somebody that you don't like, that you can't stand, but that person is your neighbor, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And you are to love everyone as you love yourself. Now when the expert in the law was like, well, I just asked who is my neighbor. He wasn't expecting this answer. He was expecting an answer that would allow him to justify himself by saying, oh, I'm already doing that. I'm already loving my neighbor. That's what he was expecting. He was trying to justify himself. But what he needed to hear and what everybody else there needed to hear and what we need to hear today is that our neighbor, this is the first important truth, our neighbor is anyone we encounter in life, no matter how different from us they might be. In fact, we might even say that the more different they are from us, the more they qualify as being our neighbors. But the problem is that everything in our culture and everything in our human nature pulls us away from that definition of neighbor. Everything in our culture and everything in our, in, in our human nature drives us toward this myopic view of the word neighbor. Neighbor is somebody just like me, somebody who believes like me, who lives like me, who acts like, who acts like me. But Jesus was saying, your neighbors, anyone you encounter in life, no matter how different they might be. And so another important truth is, is that we have to learn to love our neighbor. It's something we have to learn to do because we don't do it by default. We have to learn to love our neighbor. We don't gravitate toward love for our neighbor. We gravitate toward suspicion, right? We gravitate toward suspicion toward our neighbor. Hmm, I wonder what he's going to be like. I wonder how, how she's going to act. I wonder what she will do. We gravitate toward indifference. I'll just put up a wall, separate myself from my neighbor, separate myself from other people. What I do is, an, none, is none of their business. What they do is none of my business. And there's indifference. We gravitate toward indifference. We gravitate toward suspicion. We gravitate toward fear. Fear of the unknown. But love teaches us not to be indifferent toward those who are different. Love teaches us not to be indifferent toward those that are, that are different and not to fear what we don't know. Not to fear the things that we don't know, the things we suspect, the things we don't trust. And so we have to learn this. We have to learn this. And so how do we do that? How do we learn to love our neighbor? You know, Paul writes extensively about love 
in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'd like for you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. And no, this is not limited only to marriage. I know this is a, a, a chapter and especially some specific verses in here, the ones that we're going to read today, in fact, that are often read at weddings, right? If you, you've heard this chapter being read at weddings and therein the wedding invitation and other wedding uh, documents or whatever there might be, even napkins might have the greatest of these is love and so on, taken from 1 Corinthians 13. And it's really difficult for us to understand, I think because it's used so much for weddings, to understand that this is not really about weddings, about marriage. It certainly fits in a marriage, but it's it's about our relationship with everybody. And I think especially because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul said the same thing. Paul said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself is a fulfillment of the law. Paul said that it's a fulfillment of the law. Jesus said the whole law hangs on, on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So, uh, so I think we can we can definitely take this explanation of Paul about love and apply it in this context of what we're talking about, loving those that are hard to love. How do I love those that are hard to love? Okay, Paul tells us, all right? So try to take this out of just simply marriage. Let's not be so narrow about that. Let's expand it to loving those that are hard to love. We're going to look at these words with fresh eyes in the context of uh, God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, here's what Paul uh, writes. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Okay, so like I said, let's, let's look at this with fresh eyes today. What love is, what love is not, and what love does. Right, let's look at what love is, what love is not, and what love does. First of all, what is love? What love is, Paul said, is this. Love is patience, and love is kindness. These are the first two aspects of love that Paul mentions. And by the way, both patience and kindness are found in his description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Patience and kindness. Now, what is patience? What is patience? Patience is simply the art of waiting, especially when it's hard to wait. There are things that are not hard to wait for. But there are things that are really hard to wait for because we, we want to move ahead and we're impatient. But patience is the art of waiting. So I, uh, I, I found this video. I want to show you. It's a video of the fastest man in the world right now. His name is Usain Bolt from Jamaica. And he's the fastest man in the 100 and 200 meters. But a few years ago, when he was about to run the 100 meters at the World Championships, he was a little impatient. And so here's what happened. Let's watch this. Show it to us, Seth. Start. 
disqualified for being impatient. Now granted, I, I just think when I watch track and field, and, and I spent the last three days watching the Texas relays on TV, and when I watch that, and some of that happened also, I think they should give them another chance. One mistake and you're out. And so my wife and I were watching this these past three days, and uh, twice we saw two, one girl, one one guy were disqualified for a false start. They just got out a little too early, a little too impatient. And I and I recognize that. I felt so bad for them. I, I think they should give them just one more chance. When when I was in school and I used to run track, we had two chances. So if you had a false start, then you you know you had some grace. But second time you did a false start, then you were disqualified. Um, but that was a long time ago. And it, you might not. Believe this, but I ran track when we ran. We ran on cinder tracks. Anybody remember that? They weren't the all-weather tracks. They were the, the cinder tracks. So if it rained, we couldn't run. Cancel the track meet, you know, because there's, you know. And in fact, I remember uh, going to a school that had an all-weather track, and we're like, "Wow, this is amazing!" You mean you can run in the rain? Yeah, I mean that was like brand new. And you know, back from the old. In fact, when when I we had cinder tracks. Our batons were just tree limbs that would cut. No, I'm kidding. They were, they were, we had real batons. We had real batons. But we did have cinder tracks. Uh, but uh, can you imagine? And I remember this. I remember this. Running, you know, starting off, because like I said, I was a sprinter. And I remember being in the blocks and waiting and this tension building up in my arms. And I'm like, hurry up and... You know, fire the gun because there's this tension building up in my arms and legs, my whole body. That, you know, so I can kind of understand what, when that happens. That's why I think they should give them another chance. But, you know, what do I know? But uh, patience is the art of waiting when tension builds up. There's tension and you want to you wanna lash out at people. You, you want to say something because there's tension and you're angry. But love is patient with people and love tries to understand them and react according to uh, accordingly, love means you wait before reacting. Love is, is patience. Love is kind. Love is kind in that it always thinks of a gentle way of dealing with people. A gentle like, and a constructive way of dealing with people and dealing with difficult situations. Remember this series is called Messy because relationships are messy. That's just life. And so sometimes in a relationship, a difficult situation comes up. How are you going to handle it? We'll find a patient and a kind way to handle that difficult situation. Love is kind in that you see a need and you meet that need. That's why at the end of the story that Jesus told, when Jesus asked the expert in the law, who was a neighbor, who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers or the bandits? The expert in the law answered correctly and he said, the neighbor was the one who showed compassion. That's kindness. So what love is, love is patience with people, even when you feel tension building up. And love is kindness in dealing with people and dealing with difficult situations. 
Now, what love is not, oh, Paul gives us a long list of what love is not. And that pretty much tells us that we don't understand what love really is. I mean, if we say, oh, we should just love each other. Love is the answer. A lot of people say it, right? Love is the answer. We're not talking about that, that kind of, of, you know, just, just kind of emotional feeling. He, he gives us here what love is, and then he gives us what love is not. And he said, says, first of all, love is not envious. Love isn't envious. You know what envy is? Envy is when you see what your neighbor has. Your neighbor has something good, and it just eats you up. It eats you up to see somebody enjoying something good, a good house, a good job, uh, a great family, a good car. It just eats you up. I mean, you wish, you wish deep down that it would be taken away from them. That's envy. And envy is one of the most dangerous vices of our day. What love does is love can look at another person at the favor and blessing of God on that person and say, you know what? Good for them. Love can look at another person that's enjoying God's favor. It might not even be a person who serves God. But God's common grace really is available to everybody. So somebody might receive a blessing and and love says, good for them. I celebrate with them. I, I rejoice with them. Love isn't boastful. Boastful is thinking that everything in this world centers around us. Now, we'd never say that. But it's very possible that we live that way. Because boastful is thinking that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are just supporting actors and we're the main characters. Life is about us. The truth is that this is God's story. You're living God's story. You're not living your own story. We find ourselves trying to bring glory to ourselves rather than glory to God. Then that's being boastful. And love isn't boastful. Love, Paul says, isn't prideful. Pride is when you exaggerate and you puff yourself up. That's pride. When you exaggerate and you puff yourself up. When you have to tell everybody else all your accomplishments and all your titles and all your degrees and all your awards because you think others will be impressed and it it causes you to be puffed up. And, And by the way, I'm not talking about being proud and posting on social media, you got some award, you, your child got some recognition at work or at school or wherever it might be. That's, that's great. That's understandable. We should be happy with that. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm referring to a continual building up of yourself and reminding others what you've accomplished and who you are. And often people, others recognize pride in us before we do. So love doesn't boast and love love isn't proud. Then Paul says, love isn't dishonorable. In other words, love isn't disrespectful. Respectful people who love others see others as bearing the image of God. Respectful people who love see other people, even though they are not like us, and though they're very different like us, they might be our rivals, but they see others as bearing the image of God. They don't shame people. They don't embarrass people. They don't attack people. They don't demonize, demonize people because they're different or because they're wrong. It could be that we're right and they're wrong. And, and let's face it, we have the truth on our side. We have God's word as truth. 
somebody else who's contrary to God, contrary to the Bible, they're wrong. But love doesn't allow us to demonize somebody who, just because they're wrong. Certainly not because they're different. Because love isn't dishonorable. Love isn't self-seeking. Love seeks first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what love seeks. Love doesn't try to manipulate or force their agenda. Love doesn't try to get their own way. I, I want things to happen my way. I'm in charge. That's not love. right? So love isn't self-seeking. Love isn't easily angered. Love means not lashing out in word or lashing out in deed, in anger, by action. You know, some people, when they're angry, they lash out with words. Some people want to you know, put up their, their fist and, and fight out of anger. James said, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become anger. That's love. Love isn't easily angered. And then Paul says that, that love isn't a scorekeeper. We like to keep a scoreboard, don't we? We like to keep track in our relationships of what people have done against us. And even the good things. And if the good things outweigh the bad things, then okay, we, we can be friends. You know, I, I coached YMCA basketball a while back when Ryan was little. A couple of seasons I, I, I coached. Uh, both times I was just an assistant, but... Uh, and the first time, I just kind of helped out. The second time, I actually spent more time leading the practices and, and coaching during the game and making decisions and so on. So there were first and second graders, so uh, actually even younger than that the, the first time. So they didn't actually keep score. They didn't keep score on the scoreboard during the game. You know, the whole idea was to teach the game, teach, teach the kids their, you know, the, the skills and so on. So there was no scorekeeping, but the parents kept score. Oh, yeah, the parents would keep score. And then after the game, hey, we won that game. Well, yeah, you know, come to me, the coach. Well, you know, we're not really keeping score. Yeah, we won the game. Like, God, your child's a first grader. Just let him play. All right. So, but love means you don't keep score in your relationships. You don't keep track of what people are doing against you and for you. Love isn't a scorekeeper. And love isn't a delighter in evil because love loves integrity and innocence. Not just in ourselves. See, we, we love integrity and innocence in ourselves, but love values that in others as well. In other words, love doesn't delight when others are evil because then we, we can say, well, that's how I know you're wrong. Look at the life you're living. And it puffs us up. Love doesn't delight in other people's lifestyle, in other people's sins, so that we can judge, so we think we have a reason to judge. Love doesn't delight in evil. So that's what love doesn't do. But what does love do? What does love do? Paul says, love rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the truth. Love celebrates when truth is spoken, when truth is received, when truth is owned. Love rejoices in that when it's accepted. Uh, you know, it, it's very painful, but I, I've seen Christians who rejoice when truth is rejected by the ungodly because, again, it gives them, uh, according to them, uh, a reason to judge others. Well, true love doesn't rejoice when truth is rejected. It rejoices when truth is accepted. 
Love always protects. And the idea here is like a roof or, or a shelter, a covering. Love offers people a covering when they're struggling. Doesn't condemn, doesn't kick them when, they, when they're down. But it offers people protection, a covering when they're struggling. And, and it welcomes them in when they're hurting. Because love always protects. Love always trusts. Love goes all in in a relationship. Just like Jesus went all in for us. You know, Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. So he didn't die for us because we were good. He died for us while we were bad, while we were sinners. He, he, he loved us enough to die for us. So love always trusts. It goes all in. We, we just do stuff for people. Maybe they don't, maybe we think they don't deserve it. Maybe they think they don't deserve our love, but we love them. We always trust that love is going to come out. Biblical love is going to, is going to come out on top. Love always hopes. You know what hope is? Hope is a vision of what is possible because of God. What is your vision? If you have a rival, you have somebody who's different than you and you, you know, you disagree. What is your vision for them? What could God accomplish in their lives? Get a vision for people. You know, I mentioned, I mentioned my, my roommates, or not my roommates, but my neighbors. My roommate and, and I had these two neighbors that I mentioned. They were vulgar. They were ugly. They were filthy. They had filthy mouths. Vulgar. But I never back then had, an, had a vision for what they could be if they got saved. It never crossed my mind. I had a friend that was very similar to that when I was in high school. Uh, he was ungodly. But then he got saved. And I saw him later on at church. And I had our time. I couldn't fathom him as a Christian. I, he was leading a worship service up at the top. And I was like, his name is Rodrigo. I thought, is that Rodrigo? I, I just I can't picture him. I just Because I didn't have a vision for what people could become when they're saved. But love always hopes, and hope is a vision of what is possible because of God. We should ask God to give us a vision for what He wants to do in someone else's family. When you invite your friends to come to Easter Solid Rock, get a vision, because love always hopes. Get a vision what they could look like, what their life could be like if they're saved and when they're saved, because love always hopes. Love always perseveres. That's why we never stop praying. We never stop believing in God's power. We never stop inviting people to come to God because love always perseveres. And it leads us to the, 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 the deep summary in three words here that Paul gives us, and that is love never fails. Love never fails. This is the love of the Father that we love people with. It doesn't fail. This is the way of the Father to love us always. To love us always. And so this is the way that God wants us to love our neighbors. Let me just finish up with this. And I know we're running late because I took all the time to explain the um, six weeks of Easter. But so let me just culminate this way. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 6, and he says this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
See, the, the Jews would place themselves in different categories. They were of the circumcision. They were of the covenant. Others were outside the covenant. They were of the uncircumcision. And Paul was saying, none of that matters. He was saying, putting yourselves in different categories isn't helpful. And it, it counts for nothing. Putting yourself into, okay, I'm saved, you're unsaved, I'm this, you're that, you, you believe this way, I believe that way. Paul's saying, that doesn't, it's not helpful and it doesn't count. The only thing that counts is this, expressing our faith through love. That's what counts. Not expressing your opinion, not expressing your this or your that. It's expressing your faith through love. That's why Jesus said, Here's how people will know that you're my disciples. Here's how people will know if you have faith in me. If you love one another as I have loved you. That's how you know. That's how you know. And so today I want to challenge you to reflect on this. How do you love your neighbor? You love him the way that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 13. Who is your neighbor? Everybody you come across in life. And how do you love them? Read 1 Corinthians 13. Paul tells us. That's not just for marriages. That's for everyone. And that's for us today.